Welcome to the New Abbey podcast. We are in the book of Exodus. All right, so the first question this morning is, have you ever had anyone stand up for you and what was that like? So have you ever had anyone stand up for you and what was that like? Discuss and we'll be back in a few minutes. again, everyone. Uh, I'm so excited to be in this Exodus series. I'm so excited to be here this morning. Uh, last week was the first week of the series. If you did, if you weren't here, uh, you should really listen to the podcast. It was really, really good. So uh, we will be going week two. We're going to be in Exodus 1, 15 through 2, 10. Noah's not pumped about that. She wants to be in chapter three already. Uh, so here it is, Exodus 1, 15. It says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were hmm, Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she, could not hide, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. The girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. So, for the rest of the time this morning, we're just going to watch Prince of Egypt, if, everyone, if everyone's okay with that. Yeah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I'm glad they got a laugh. Halfway into it, I was like, oh, this is dumb. Okay, so, this is the story of the birth of Moses, and the second half of this passage is pretty miraculous, right? So, the baby's in a basket. The sister's following. It ends up somehow in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. She asks for someone to nurse the baby, and the sister gets Pharaoh's mother. 
Uh, and then we all kind of know, or maybe we don't, but if you grew up in the church, you know that Moses grows, goes on to do some incredible things, right? Um, a lot of miracles and a lot of freedom. And so this is a pretty miraculous passage of scripture. But I want to go back and focus on uh, the beginning, actually. So in the very beginning of this passage, you have Pharaoh ordering the midwives to kill any baby boys that are born. And the midwives don't do it. They make up a story that the Hebrew women are just too strong. um, And they have birth before we could even get there. It's crazy. Uh, And they don't do it. And so I love this, and I've never even noticed this before. And then as I'm talking about it, and Corey and I are talking about it, uh, he's telling me that all the Hebrew commentaries say that this, the midwives refusing to kill these Hebrew babies was the first ever recorded act of civil disobedience. So this is the first time uh, historically that someone has recorded uh, a group of people or, or anyone uh, in an act of civil disobedience. And it's so beautiful. But what I love about this, this passage and the midwives is they didn't, the text does not imply in any way that they knew that they were making way for Moses, right? It doesn't say, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, You're a baby a boy is going to come and he's going to be the one to deliver the Israelites and give freedom. They just did it, right? It says they feared God and out of that, uh, they let the babies live. And if you were around when we did our series in Proverbs, um, we talked about fear as Uh, this awe and mystery, right? This idea of being uh, captivated by the awe and mystery of God, this wonder, this bigger narrative, this bigger story, this counter sort of idea. And the midwives were so overwhelmed with the bigger story and the awe and mystery of God that they just felt in their hearts, I don't think this God that is full of awe and mystery and wonder would want us to kill these babies, so we're not going to. There is no promise that anything will happen. There's no promise that a Hebrew woman will give birth to Messiah. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. And it reminds me of the passage in uh, Hebrews 11, where it goes through a lot of the exemplars in faith. In the beginning of the passage, it says, and none of them were alive to see what they were promised, right? But then it goes on to say, by faith, Rahab, by faith, uh, Abraham, by faith, Jacob. And it gives the whole story. And at the end of, of, in Hebrews 11:30, it says, and the world was not worthy of them, Right? We have so many moments in scripture where it talks about people who just do something because they love and fear God and they're captivated captivated by the awe and wonder and that pushes them to do something that opposes the empire or the power structure or the narrative, the social narrative that people are used to. And so that's what these midwives did. So as I'm reading this passage and I'm learning more about the, the midwives and their civil disobedience and realizing that they were just doing that without the promise of, of freedom, or miracles, right? They didn't know what happens, you know, four verses later. Um, I was reminded of one of my, my favorite periods in history. The thing I nerd out on the most in the world is the, the American Civil Rights Movement. And um, for five years, I was able to lead a civil rights tour where we get in a van and we go through the South and we spend a week there and we interview people who are around in the Civil Rights Movement and we visit the, the sites and we go to museums. And every year, I would read books to repair, and I would just nerd out on all the details. But no matter uh, what I did, I always learned about someone I had never heard of who was very important. And I'm like, how is this possible, right? And then you realize, oh, because thousands of people made that movement possible. Thousands of people that did not know what was going to happen. So one year, we got to interview this woman. Her name's Dr. Gwen Patton. 
And Dr. Gwen Patton grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. And Montgomery, Alabama had one of the most beautiful revolutions within the revolution, and that was the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, the Montgomery bus boycott lasted 381 days. This is more than a year-long commitment to this resistance. And it was so well organized, and Gwen was a teenager at the time, and her parents were what uh, was called block leaders. So during the Montgomery bus boycott, right, none of the black folks in Montgomery were taking the bus. And so they had ways to get to work, um, but you still need to get groceries, you need to get medicine, you need doctor's visits, there's a lot of things that you need to do, and cars were not super uh, abundant in, in the black communities, and so they found block leaders. So each street was supported by someone who had a car, and they would be the block leader. So Gwen's parents were block leaders, which meant every Sunday, Gwen would go down the street, the neighborhood, uh, the block that they were assigned, get everyone's grocery list, their prescription list, everything they needed, bring it back to her parents, go to the store, they would pick it up, they would come back, and they would give everything to um, everyone that they needed on their block, right? This is incredible, and no one's ever heard of her parents, and no one ever will hear of her parents. Um, and the sadder truth is her parents uh, didn't even live to see the full force of the movement, right? But that movement is filled with so many people like that that we'll never know about or hear about, but did what they could, not because they believed uh, even that they would see the fulfillment of that freedom or those promises, because it was the right thing to do, because they had a narrative about the world and about awe and mystery that said, I think it's bigger than segregation, and I'm willing to risk things for that truth. And we see that with so many people in the movement. There's Julian Bond or Bayer Rustin or Claudette Colvin, who was arrested just nine months before Rosa Parks for not giving up her seat on the bus, and a hundred others whose names I will never know, right? And it just creates this beautiful picture for me of people in the civil rights movement, of these midwives, of everyone who says, I haven't been promised anything, and I don't know if I will see the fulfillment of this. I am doing things because it's the right thing to do. And I love it. And then I started thinking about the flip side of this, right? So on the flip side of this, you have, of course, the midwives who are refusing to do this and letting the Hebrew babies live, but then you have the Hebrew women who have to, in my opinion, this is the more uncomfortable position, when you have to trust that people out there love and fear God and will act on your behalf. These are just pregnant women who just had to trust and believe that someone else feared God and would let their children live, which is a terribly uncomfortable position to be in, right? It's, it's sometimes better to say, I'm risking something and I'm putting something on the line for something, someone else, but to be in the position to say, uh, I am in the oppressed position and I feel helpless and I just have to trust that other people love and fear God and believe in a bigger story and that I will be taken care of, right? Who here loves vulnerability? <laughs> okay, they, yeah, right. Um, and so it's twofold. And I was, I was thinking about this, I was talking to Corey, and I have this, I have this aunt, one of my mom's sisters. So my mom is, is uh, first generation Mexican, and, and uh, my grandparents were immigrants, and one of her sisters um, lives down like near San Diego, and she drives a Suburban. She's, like the, she's a physically small woman, um, and she's just so awesome. And a couple, like several years ago, she stumbled sort of, I think through like a series of wrong turns and getting lost on a migrant community down there. 
So these are migrant workers. Uh, they were all undocumented um, and in just great need. And so she just asked them, is there anything you need? And they told her. She went back to her community. Uh, she was in a predominantly white community. And she just started asking people, do you have any extra whatever it was that they need? She didn't tell them what it was for, or they probably might not have given it. She's just like, does anyone have any extra, you know, hairbrushes, clothes, you know? Packed up her little Suburban and would go back. And has since found, I think, like 10 or 12 of these communities that she's just creating support for, right? And my aunt will never be um, in a book. She's one of the coolest women I know. But what's wild to me is think about the people in those communities who are just telling a random woman what they need and hoping she shows up the next week with a suburban full of things, right? And so every story always has two parts. And when I think about this story, I get so fired up to be like the midwife, you know? I'm like, I'm going to fight and I'm going to resist and I'm going to like go so hard in the revolution. Um, but what I don't want is for anyone to have to take care of me or to stand up for me or to ever be in a position of vulnerability where I have to trust that someone out there is going to help me or has my interest at heart because they love and fear God, right? Um, but the story has both and it's so beautiful. And so um, in thinking about the second half of this passage, it seems like the miraculous important parts, right? That Moses was born, that his mother nursed him, that his sister followed him, that Pharaoh's daughter uh, got him, and I love it. And then you have the act of resistance by the midwives that kind of set the scene for all that to happen. And then even more subtly, which is potentially my favorite part of understanding this whole passage, right, is there's a part where it says they told Pharaoh, you know, the Hebrew women were too strong. So it's like they had the same story, which means at some point they had to get together and be like, hey, girl, what's our story for when Pharaoh comes asking about these Hebrew boys that are running around? It's like, no, let's just tell them they're too strong. Um, so even deeper into that, it's they had the same story. At, at some point, one of the midwives had to speak it. At one point, one of the midwives had to say, hey, I'm not sure that I am okay with killing these Hebrew babies. I would like to find a way so that we don't have to do that, right? At some point, it had to be spoken out loud. Uh, she had to put herself on the line and see if anyone uh, would respond if they were feeling the same way, right? And the more and more I read this passage, I'm like, that is such a significant moment because without that, what would she have done? Would she have quietly thought that but did what she had to do? Would she have you know, she opened herself up for rejection from the other middle. Like, no, girl, I'm going to turn you in. Um, a hundred things could have gone, but she spoke it. She spoke it into a place where it then turned into action. And this is what we, I love. All morning we've been talking about this already, language, action, rhythm. It starts with sort of speaking it, right? And even in Max's sort of story of like, yeah, I, th I thought it and I had it. And then I kind of had to say it and, and move it into something. And so... Um, as we talk about the civil rights movement, this is one of my favorite stories, potentially, from the civil rights movement. Um, and by the way, every story of the civil rights movement is my favorite. So <laughs> I'm going to say that about every story I ever use from the civil rights movement. I'm like, you know, my favorite story. Um, and some of you may have heard this or be familiar with this story, but it's just so incredible to me. So uh, there's a man named Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him. <laughs> And um, one of the little known figures of the civil rights movement. Uh, but he gave a speech uh, that is commonly known as the I Have a Dream speech, right? Again, anyone? Anyone heard of it? Yeah. Um, so it's a very important speech. It's a very important moment in the movement. 
And so uh, that's, that speech did not originally include that part, right? So if you go and you look at the original manuscript of the speech, which was in a museum, but I think just got uh, bought by a private collector, um, which means nothing for the sermon. I'm just talking about that. Um, <laughs> but the original manuscript of the speech, that part's not in it. The speech ends just about right before he talks about, he says, I have a dream, right? That was the end of the speech as planned. And so uh, the dream that he talks about is an actual dream that he had that he shared with some of his friends. And so if you listen to the speech and you listen closely, he'll get to the part before that where the speech is about to end. And then you hear Mahalia Jackson say, tell him about the dream, Martin. And then he goes on to say, I have a dream, right? And he talks about his actual dream that he had. That goes on to be one of the most pivotal speeches uh, and one of the most pivotal uh, movements that we have. And it all came from speaking it out. That was an actual dream that he had that he had to share with someone. So at the right place, at the right time, his community can show up and be like, no, remember that dream you had. Now's the time to share it. And so when we think about living in a place like Los Angeles in 2017 in a community like New Abbey, we all look around and have something somewhere that we see in the world that conflicts with our understanding of God. That we say there's more awe and more mystery and more healing out there that is possible, and I see something that is directly conflicting with that, I want to offer a counter-narrative. I have a dream, right, that people will be judged uh, by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. He did not see, live to see that dream fulfilled. Definitely steps uh, were taken and we are, there was movement made, but he just thought that was the right thing, right? The awe and mystery and fear and love of God had pushed him to say, I think that the bigger story says it's not about the color of our skin, right? And that thing is still moving forward, right? There's still neo-Nazis in Santa Monica. But what an important part he played in this movement. And so when I go back to the midwives or his speech or uh, Hebrews 11 and all of those exemplars of faith that we have, it's not necessarily about giving birth to the miracles or seeing the promise it's about getting so wrapped up in the awe and mystery that we see a place where the world needs healing. We speak that to a community that will say, tell them about the dream. Or that will say, I'm with you, girl. Let's tell Pharaoh the Hebrew women are too strong and we couldn't get there. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And when we talk about this community, when we talk about this community being a rowboat, like Corey said, it's not about us saying, all right, on Saturday, we're all going to go out and we're going to do this or paint a school, right? It's about looking around the world and saying, where can you act? What power do you have? What privilege do you have? Where are spaces where you can speak? And are you sharing that with enough people that when you don't want to do it or you feel scared, someone will say, tell them, remember that thing, right? You have friends that will remind you of that. And then on the flip side, how do we continue to trust and put ourselves in vulnerable positions where we trust that there are enough people who believe in this bigger story of God that someone somewhere is working on your behalf when you feel like you're hopeless. And I think those are the two parts that each one of us will play at some point in our life of looking of where we need to act and then looking of where we need to trust. But I think both of those are so important to be spoken. And like Corey said, we're in this series right now where we are inviting everyone to process, right? 
to, to speak, to write, to express things that you have inside. When you look at the world and you are filled with awe and mystery and there is just one thing or several things that you wish could be different, well, how, what can you do? When I look at the midwives, there were a lot of things that were wrong in that time, right? The killing of the babies was not the only bad thing happening. It was the thing happening that they had access to. So when we look at the world, I feel like it could be easy to get overwhelmed. Oh, I want to fix everything. Great, me too. But what do I have access to? What can I actually do, right? They're like, the one thing we can do is not kill these babies that we were asked to. Not knowing that it would lead to the birth of Moses, who would lead to freedom, um, and would lead to many miracles down the road. And so as we gather and become a part of this community and we process through the book of Exodus, those are the two places, right, that I think of in this passage of what can we do and where do we need to trust? And who are we telling that can hold us accountable at the right place in the right time to join us, to remind us, or whatever that looks like? So we're going to get back in our groups and talk about this question. Where do you see a bigger story? Where is the awe and mystery calling you to act? And what is one thing you could do? So get back in the groups you were in before and enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.